Hello, this is Chris Fomsby. Welcome to the Burlap Podcast. I'm here with Chris Abel. Hello. And today uh, we're going to get a little bit more practical than we have been in the last couple of podcasts. Here's why. A few uh, weeks ago I was doing a training in one of our Burlap workshops in Columbus, Ohio area, actually at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Thanks for hosting me. And we uh, were having a great time, and I got a, you know someone who stopped me during the break and said, hey, I listen to your podcast. They're great. But sometimes they're a little just too much theoretical, too much sort of ethereal. Why don't you guys do something more practical? They said, they said ethereal? I mean, that's my word for the interpreting what, the, what was said, right? So, like, it, it was basically like, why don't you, like, get real? Come back down <laughs> to the planet Earth. And do something that, like, actually is helpful. No, they were, they were kind about it. And they said they listened to the podcast, which was good. It's always good to have listeners. Thank you for listening. But uh, that's exactly what we're going to do. I, Chris, I just want to ask you a few questions about uh, practical young adult ministry, right? So give, give me, why don't, why don't we do this? You know, and we've touched base a little bit on this before. We have a podcast earlier in our series of episodes that I think will touch some of this. But let's get practical again and help people who are going, all this stuff about millennials and Gen Z is great, but how do I actually do it? What are some things that I need to be aware of as I am trying to reach and engage millennials and Gen Z. So you are a young adult pastor. You yep. work every day with dozens and dozens of people who come to this events and experiences that you offer, mission trips, classes, things like that. What would you say are a few of the tips and tricks, if you will, for reaching and engaging millennials and Generation Z? And like, what's been your experience in, do in doing that recently? Right. I'll try to keep this not ethereal. <laughs> Bring it down to earth a little bit. So um, there's three things I think we should talk about. Uh, the first is, here, I'm just going to say the three of them really quickly, and then we can do kind of, it, do we it. Kind of yeah. uh, zoom in a little more. Okay. Right? First one's pay attention to your context and your environment. Um, the second one is distribute your leadership, and the third one is tap into other generations. Now, these alone don't make a lot of sense, right? So we have to, we have to take a moment to expand on them. The first one is pay attention to your environment. And what I've noticed in ministry, working with young adults, and kind of this is just, I think, just good ministry or maybe even just business um, or having kind of that entrepreneurial spirit is you got to be you got to be watching and listening and looking that sometimes we get into this rut in churches where we think we're supposed to do it just like anyone else. We get too copycatty. We just think that you're supposed to like take one thing and just implement it and it'll work anywhere. And I see this in like a lot of non-denominational churches, right? They have no necessarily like denominational structure and yet like 90% of them are exactly the same. If you were not, if I was non-denominational, I would be like, I'd have the most unique church. We'd really like try new things all the time, right? Because we have no denominational structure to like make us conform to. And that's not bad-mouthing non-denoms. I'm just saying. Yeah, I was like, going to ask you, like, what, what does that have to do with being it, denominational or non-denominational? Well, I think it's the idea of like, even without the structure, what people do is they copy each other. Like that's a lot of churches. Well, how that instead is, of being unique to their own context. Okay, but how is structure forcing, necessarily copycatting? Well, I think because that's the other side of your conversation, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. I don't. I, whatever. I don't mean to pick on you. I just think, well, I just I think, think by stereotypically, denominational churches are all the same. Also, maybe depends on the denomination. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's get back to your yes. point. On but content. the point is, like, you should be unashamedly focused on the uniqueness and the context of your environment. 
And so one example of that is, you know, we work for Church for the Resurrection in Kansas City, who our senior pastor loves saying that he preaches at a collegiate level. He's looking to help people who maybe wrestle with intellectualism or find themselves in a place where they want to use reason and thinking in their faith. And so we have a lot of thinking Christians or people who are thinkers who maybe are not sure about Christianity. And so in that context, it means that a feely kind of ministry doesn't flourish in quite the same way that an intellectual one does, you know? And I lean myself probably more towards the feely than the intellectual, maybe just like 1%. But um, what I found is that the things that really flourish in this environment are not the things that flourish in another environment. So that's one particular instance. Can you think of anything else? Well, no, let that? me ask you this. What, what constitutes your environment? Like, let's help people think through that. So okay. if you were to say, if, let's imagine that you're leading a workshop somewhere and someone says to you, okay, this sounds great that I'm supposed to pay attention to my environment, but what exactly is my environment? Like, let's, let's just okay. talk through that, like really basic, simple, you know, because I think that's, if that's the starting ground for whatever, I'll say argument, but you know what I mean, any kind of points that we want to make on that, let's define what we mean by environment. So what do you mean by environment? I think you mean all sorts of stuff. Things that come to mind initially are a lot of churches fall. What was that chart you had that churches and Christians fall on the plane of like more social justice minded or more spiritual, you know, their personal spirituality? Remember that chart? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's typically four, I'll say, you know, just leading lenses that people look through when they go about ministry. Sometimes it's activism. Sometimes it's more of a contemplative nature. Sometimes it's intellectual. And sometimes it's more like, you know, the aesthetic, like beauty, wonder, mystery, those kinds of things. I think that's true for how churches operate, but I also think that's true for how people individually might grow in their faith as well. The first kind of inclination or what they're drawn to the most. It doesn't mean that churches only do one of those four. It just means that typically that you, there's a there's a predominating way of, of which they go about organizing and, you know, calling people into their community. So say the four again? So you have, like, if you think of like a, you know, a crosshair, so to speak. So you have this intellectual at the top and you have this ascetic uh, aesthetic at the bottom, so beauty, mystery, wonder. That if you look at the left side of this cross uh, crosshair, you will you will find like a contemplative. The other side of that will be an activist. So they're kind of like in tension with one another. It doesn't mean you can't be both. Doesn't mean you can't experience all four of those things at some point in your life or in the life of your community. But I find that those are sort of four, I will say, predominating ways people think about doing church. Yeah. So growing up, I was part of a community that would have seen itself as focused on aesthetic and uh, contemplation, kind of. So the idea was like, you feel something in church, make it beautiful, make the music beautiful, have an emotional experience. But then later in life, uh, like my long, long life, I've, uh, I've found myself in environments that are way more on the intellectual and activist side of things. So these, these are both pe- Christian communities that just find themselves very different in how they implement their faith. So, so if you're still, in one of those, so if you're in a intellectual, uh, you know, activist environment, and then you try to put together a contemplative aesthetic program or class or environment, what's going to happen is you're going to be, even though that might balance and it might be needed, it, you're not going to get the same kind of traction with young adults if you've or if you're w- moving away from the dominant culture of your community. So we need to think about the culture of our community, our church community, but I think also we need to think about the culture of uh, the non-religious and nominally religious 
community, right? So you have this, and I think what I'm trying to get at is when someone thinks about, okay, I need to pay attention to my environment, then what is my environment? It's both my church and those who I'm trying to reach and engage, right? So how might that shape what we what we do? How would we understand the community as a whole, the greater community, the people who are driving by the church every day and have no idea what's taking place inside the walls of that church? What are some ways that you would think that it would be important for us to understand that context, that community? Oh, man, that's a good one. You know, I don't know if this is off topic a little bit, but I feel like this was a blunder that happened this week in Houston with uh, Joel Olstein in Lake Lakeside, Lakewood, maybe Lakewood Church. Thank you. Sorry, and uh, you see this church that, and, and I'm, I see a lot of Joel haters out there right now. And I, I've and through seminary, people just like to pick on this dude. He's the biggest church in America. And is it the biggest in America? It is by no, far. No, it's like by no double. So the hurricane hit Houston. It just turned into a tropical storm. It sat over Houston. All the flooding. And then the church didn't necessarily open its doors right away. Now, it has since, but some people are claiming that's just because of public peer pressure and that the church's immediate response should have been to open its doors and to take people. Well, I don't, you know, I don't know this church well. I'm assuming it probably on that chart lands more towards the aesthetic, myst, you know, uh, not mystical, whatever, you, contemplative yeah. side of things. Maybe. The I don't know anything about them. spiritual experiences are not necessarily activist. And so the the critique that that we're getting nationally about this church is that they weren't activist enough. And it's just kind of funny. So that's something that comes to mind when you think about, you know, how does the church reflect what's going on outside of it? Yeah, well, I, I would say like this, because, and I don't know anything about Lakewood. I mean, right. I know of it. I've, you know, but I don't know. Was it flooded? Was it not flooded? Why didn't they open their doors? I have no idea. And I'm not sitting here trying to judge that or even determine that. I don't think it's important for this conversation other right. than to say people had an immediate reaction to that. So whether it was the national media and the national uh, sort of uh, uh, viewing of what was taking place, where that opinion came from, that perspective came from, or whether it was people in Houston, I don't know. Because I talked to a guy earlier in the week when this story broke on CNN, is where I first saw it, and this guy said, no, actually, I have a lot of friends who go there, and they do a lot in their community. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm sure that's the case. I guess what I'm getting at is when, when you pay attention to your environment, one of the things you have to know is you have to know what people think of your church. What, what do they know about it? What's the narrative? What's the brand? What's, what are pe what's the story people are telling about your church? And I think that's a really important and sometimes I would even say underutilized, you know, or uh, not, not underutilized. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, underappreciated, maybe, uh, aspect of how we do ministry. So understand your church context. Yes, your leadership, the way you do church, how to best reach the people who are coming. But your environment is also the people who have no idea who you are other than the story people tell about you. Yeah. And so whether it's Lakewood and Joel Olstein or whether it's, you know, a church somewhere, you know, else, that the reality is people have an opinion and a view of your church community. What is that? And then how does that shape how you do ministry, right? I think that's important. So pay attention to your environment. Context is everything. Um, earlier you were mentioning something about the Amazon guy, what Jeff Bezos. What, what were you yeah, going to say so about the, that? This is a slight different perspective on the same one. So this idea of paying attention to your environment is also kind of like look for opportunities, right? And so Jeff Bezos, uh, who started Amazon, 
He's comparing business to baseball. Now, I know you're a huge baseball fan. Love baseball. I know almost nothing about it. I found $2 Royal tickets the other day, and I went. <laughs> They're easy to find these days. <laughs> I mean, sadly. I'm a big Royals fan, huge Royals fan, but I think they have uh, found themselves out on the edge looking in this year. So that's maybe, a bummer. Maybe next year. Yeah. Um, it was always next year. Well, here's the quote. He said, the difference between baseball and business, however, is that baseball has a truncated outcome distribution, which is, that's pretty fancy right there. When you swing, no matter how well you connect with the ball, the most runs you can get is four. In business, every once in a while, when you step up to the plate, you can score a thousand runs. And I think what he's saying there is that if you keep experimenting at some point, you're going to hit the ball and you're going to, you could put in business, you're not limited by the rules of the game that you can, you should swing because every once in a while you're going to get something that really hits it. And I think that's about paying attention to your environment is like knowing when it's time to swing and that there may be, uh, you might have to try 10 or 20 different ministry ideas before one of them really connects with the ball and has the kind of results that outweigh all the failures before that. Good. Yeah, that's great. I mean, context is certainly everything. Stepping up to the plate and, you know, the four runs, thousand runs thing. How the the reality is, you know, you got to get to the plate and take some take some swings. You got to give it a try, not knowing what the outcome is. Baseball does have a truncated distribution. You're only going to get four. Whether we're talking about people here, we're talking about baseball runs. The reality is, if you're not trying something, then you will then you will likely fail, right? If you get in there and you swing and miss, at least you tried. Right. I'm running into a bunch of people who, as when, whether they come to our burlap workshops or they reach me online or they message me through our Twitter, whatever's happening, that the various messages I get is like, we don't even know where to start and we can help people get started. And that's kind of what we do. But at the same time, it's like, how do you not know where to start sometimes? Like if you're a student of your culture, right, your church community and the community at large, then you, you ought to be able to identify four to five very basic common threads that the church and the community might have as a place to start and then step up to the plate, give it a whack. You might get a thousand runs, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, you might get two, but if you don't get up there and take a swing, nothing can happen. So that's the first one. Pay attention to your environment. The second one is distribute leadership. Now as someone who likes control, this one is a lesson that has taken me a long time to learn. When I first got into youth ministry, which is my first paid ministry job, I did everything. I had so much trouble asking for help. And let me tell you, you do not last long in ministry if you don't figure out how to ask for help. But simply being forced to ask for help is not the same as distributing leadership. That there are a lot of different gifted people. And that even if you don't have a young adult program, if you have a few people, um, people have gifts and they have abilities. And so one thing that I've done, just this is, uh, you know, I feel like when we started this podcast maybe six months ago, um, or I started on the podcast, I told a story about how I formed a leadership team and I didn't invite them to be leaders. I invited them to be think, you know, help with my think tank. Well, it turns out that that didn't really get people to stick and it helped in the short term. Um, but uh, in this last week, I had my first formal leadership uh, committee meeting with some young adults in our program. So 15 of us uh, got together. And what I did is I assigned leadership roles to the young adults. And we had com- a larger leadership committee. We're going to meet once a month. 
And then basically I'm going to trust them to run certain aspects of our program. So what we've done is we've divided our young adult program into five subcategories for this team. We have one that's called a round table, which is our weekly Tuesday night event. I want some, I have a few people who are just going to help lead and dream what that event nice. can look like. Nice. The second one is social activities. So young adults, man, it's lonely out there. We want to have some fun. It's usually the easiest way to get people in the doors to have something with low stakes. People won't necessarily come to church, but they'll come bowling or to a fireworks or to go play f ultimate Frisbee. So a committee that's just going to help put on that, uh, come up with ideas, dream. The third one is our, um, our service and mission committee. So we want to do a monthly event where we are giving back to the community in some way. So we were either going to partner with our mission organization here in our church, or we're going to do our own thing once in a while. So we're constantly looking at how do we give back in some way and not make this just about us. The fourth team is our connections team. And while, again, we don't, do some, we don't have a service for young adults, but there's still something about you have to follow up with people. And so I've realized that I'm the bottleneck for meeting new people, that I can meet so many new people a week, and it adds up. But if I can multiply myself and follow up with more new people. Um, so we've basically created a sub team that's just helping figure out a connection system. How do we keep track of people so they don't fall through the cracks? And then lastly is communication. I'm just asking people to help with our newsletter and social media. I can do that stuff, but I... So can lots of other people. So can lots of other people, yeah. yeah. I need to give that stuff away. So I have two thoughts on that. First of all, I like the way you've broken down those five teams to help sort of continue to build the ministry uh, that you're in every day. But you didn't just walk in and say, I need a team. And we'll talk about this in a minute, yeah. how you got there. But I think one of the other key components of this whole sort of idea of distributing leadership and your story of youth ministry doing everything. So when I was a youth pastor in, in uh, Albany, New York, there was a senior pastor by the name of Stan Key who uh, was just a tremendous leader. I mean, just an unbelievable sort of quiet, humble servant leader. And he asked me one day, uh, he said, so how's the youth ministry going? I said, man, I'm just really tired. And uh, he goes, well, why are you so tired? I said, well, man, we got this Monday night thing, we got this Wednesday night thing, we got this Sunday night thing, we got this once a month mission thing, we got all this. He goes, well, why are you doing it all? And I said, well, I mean, that's why I'm here. He goes, that's not why you're here. You're here to invite people from the community, our church community, to share their gifts and talents with the rest of the community. Instead of running programs, you should be looking for people who can run programs. And that kind of like totally blew my mind because I was a young youth pastor thinking like the church was hiring me to be a program director as if I was running something at the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club. No offense to what they do. I'm not saying that, you know, anything about them. I'm just saying that's, it's not just that, right? It's, it's empowering people. So I think what happens in the long run is when you do ministry for as many years as, as I have, over 20 years, you finally realize that the value in sustainable long-term ministry is not in how smart you are, how good you are of a speaker, how talented of a leader you are. Sustainable ministry, healthy sustainable ministry happens when you develop a team around you who, if you left tomorrow, the ministry would continue. And uh, that takes a while to understand that. I mean, I think for the first 10 years of my ministry, I was just like running myself ragged. Not that I'm not tired now and, and like totally giving myself to ministry. It's just that having the opportunity to invest in people 
and distribu distributing that leadership is key to the ongoing success of our entire ministry. And uh, so, I, so I, yeah, so if you're not thinking about developing a team, wherever you are out there, like whatever your ministry, maybe you're just starting a young adult ministry. Maybe you don't have one yet. Maybe you're just starting the conversations about starting a young adult ministry. Or maybe you've been running one for five years. If you don't have that in place, you will not be successful, effective, fruitful, I don't think faithful in the long run. So all that to say, that was my experience of learning it. Now I'm trying more and more every day to give stuff away rather than just take it on myself, right? And that takes trust too. It's hard, yeah. right? Because people don't do things the way you want them to do them. They don't sort of have the same level of quality. What quality is to you and quality is to me might mean two different things. But in the end, it's a, it becomes a coaching mechanism, right? It becomes how do we help lead people who are leading people. But you, like I said a minute ago, you didn't just walk into resurrection over a year ago and first thing you said was, I need a leadership team. Well, I, I even tried, honestly. Well, I know you did. And I was pushing you to, you know, say, you need a leadership team, you need a leadership team. But it wasn't to formulate a team. It was to find the right people. And so you sought out over the last year through just simply building relationships with people who is committed to this, who has interests in this, who has the gifts that I need, you know, not in an agenda way, but just in a building a fruitful, faithful ministry kind of a way together, right? I think it can turn into an agenda sometimes. Some yep. of us like organizational leadership and the dynamics of that so much that that's what drives us, not ministry to people. And so, but I think in your case, it was like, hey, let me get invested here for a little bit. Let me spend some time with some people. Let me build some trust. Let me build relationships. And then let's talk about who might be a part of this team. So, I'm, so I guess what I'm saying in all that is it's okay if it takes you time to bring the team together. Just know you're going to need a team, right? And then that team, what that team does, I think, is helps you pay closer attention to your environment because now you have more people thinking mm. on your behalf than just you, right? You have people saying, well, here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I'm learning. What if we did this based on the fact that we are X, Y, and Z type of a community? So anyway, that to me is a really important aspect is the leadership team. Yeah. So two things about that. The first one is I've had multiple people this week from that team say, hey, thank you so much for thinking of me. I'm really excited about what this team's going to do. And, you know, I'm thinking, thank you for your hours and energy and i feel guilty that i've asked for your help in this way but they're not thinking it that way they're thinking of, they're excited to share and to give and to lead and the second thing is i tried doing this a year ago and it got nowhere why and, do you think that is and here's think, my theory okay i have a theory as well so i'm from the east coast and what i've seen on the coasts is that the culture is a little different like people on the coast and, and maybe this is Maybe I'm generalizing too much here. I just find that, like, there's a lot more ideation. There's a lot more, like, oh, my gosh, that'd be a really cool idea. And people will they will actually come together around an idea before they'll come around something that's actually tangible and physical. It's kind of like Kickstarter. Like, a bunch of people come around an idea of a new TV show or a new product. In the Midwest, what I found is that people do not come around ideas. They come around actual things. So it's kind of like I need to... Mm, it's, it's like the what I've said is it's like the horse wants to inspect the cart before it pulls it, <laughs> you know, like it wants to see like, oh, what do we have here? And like, um, I might, you know, give some energy here, but I want to know what I'm giving. You know, they call Missouri the show me state. And I found this when I was doing planting a campus for a church in St. Louis. We were going to rent a school and people would say, I just can't. You know, I just can't imagine 
uh, church and a school. I just don't think people are going to come to this. And I, those, those people just, they weren't on my leadership team. I had to find the rare person who was like, yeah, let's do it. And it was really hard for people to see something that wasn't there yet. So I don't know if that's just generally people or if that is actually like geographical, but that's been what I had with my leadership team is we actually needed some programs before people then committed to lead them to be better and bigger. Well, whether it's geographical or just some generalization, it's still context, right? Your context, everything comes yeah. back to context. And I think that's important. But let me tell you why I think that the early leadership team you put together, you used the word failed. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was just the think tank you needed. I don't think your vision was in place yet. I think it took you some time to say, based on our community, based on our church, I think we need to do this. And that takes some time. People are always in such a rush, and rather than having the art of the long view in mind, they're like, what can we do today? And it's like, well, today you should be thinking about, you know, what you might begin to do tomorrow, the next day, not necessarily. And so what, what the ends up happening is you start thinking further and further out and pointing people, this is where we're headed. So without that vision that you just didn't have yet, it just takes time to build that. I, you know, whether you're in the Midwest or the Northeast, you still got to say, this is where we're headed. Who wants to be involved? And when you just say, hey, I don't really know what we're doing yet, but I just need you to come together and sort of support me. You don't really have a leadership team. You have sort of a think tank or a support team. And those are good, ta- good teams to have, but they're not the leadership team that's going to advance the ministry forward, both faithfully and fruitfully, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think you're right on with that. So number one was pay attention to the environment and all that comes with that, the context, et cetera. Number two is distribute leadership. What's the third one? Third one would be tap into your other generations. I think sometimes we feel guilty about the fact that we don't have that many young adults or we think that older generations don't care about young adults. I have had so many young people come to our program because of a grandparent, a parent, a work person. Uh, I think they call those co-workers uh, and also known as colleagues, colleagues invited uh, someone to our church and they may not even come to our church. They may never even stepped in the doors, but there, there are people who are looking for connection and they're curious enough that they'll come to church because a 70 year old invited them. And so, but that 70 year old would not have invited them if I didn't get some FaceTime at some point in front of that 70 year old. And so whether that means getting involved in a worship service, helping out in other ways, you've seen Chris, I asked to be part of, we did a conference this last weekend for our church. The average age is probably what, 60 in there. And yet, you know, I asked if I could have a speaking role. Uh, And that isn't just so that I can, you know, teach people about evangelism, but so that I could get some FaceTime with some old, some of our older congregants who then say, hey, this guy is a young adult pastor. I think my grandson or I think this person in my life might actually be interested in what they're doing with their ministry. That they can be your biggest advocates in helping reach young adults. So to tap into other generations, you would say find ways in your church to be involved in the things that may not directly be associated in people's mind with young adult ministry. Yeah. But there's certainly an implicit or an intangible connection that's there. Sometimes it becomes tangible in your case. So just to give a little bit of context, we hosted our first ever go conference around uh, the great commission, you know, uh, therefore go and make disciples. Right. And so we had a couple hundred people show up and it was great. And Chris spoke and uh, people were meeting and many of those people were meeting you for the very first time. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they may have heard Pastor Adam say, hey, we have a new young adult pastor when you first came on, but they hadn't met you yet. They hadn't maybe even seen you because of the nature of our church and the variety of worship services, the size of our church, the, how spread out our campus is. Some people just never knew you, but to be in that environment gave them the privilege, I'll say, to go, oh, you know what? And gave them permission to think through, oh, you know what? If he's the young adult pastor... And I have a young adult in my life, whether it's my kid or my grandkid, maybe I should link the two of them up, right? I mean, that's what happened. And so Saturday morning of the conference, I was trying to get your attention to go up and pray over the meal, right? And you're sitting there having a conversation with a family who's trying to figure out how do we engage our young adult in ministry. That's how it works. So to tap into other generations isn't just to ask them for money and ask them for resources. It's actually to serve them as well, be a pastor to those people as well. You said something before our podcast. You said no one loves this age group like their parents. And, man, that is true. Like, there's a lot of parents who are agonizing over the state of their 20 or 30-something. And they're an advocate for your program, for your church, for reaching people who, um, you know, are not currently sitting in your church right now or part of your community. Um, one other thing to, to mention, like, sometimes, for whatever reason, if you're, if you're a millennial right now and you're in leadership at a church— don't antagonize older generations. They are not your enemy. They're not your obstacle. Sometimes that can happen between our generations is that we see this, the, we see older generations as, you know, if only they would change or if only they would do this or that. Um, sometimes they need to be taught. Sometimes they don't know that they're in the way. Sometimes they're not in the way, you know what? And that we need to be more humble with our approach of, you know, connecting with that generation. That, those are all just kind of uh, you know, just related to that topic. but Yeah, and before you came on staff, we had a situation where one of the adult Sunday school classes, and, you know, they meet every Sunday morning faithfully, and they have been for years. They uh, came to me and they said, hey, we want to get our kids involved. Our kids are not involved in a faith community. They're just not involved in church, and we want to try to get them involved. So they said, what do we need to do to get them involved? And that's where I started thinking, man, no one loves this age group more than their parents. So they decided, hey, at least one Sunday a month, they were going to not do their class and instead host a breakfast for their kids. Just all it was, was a meal. And that meal, to make a long story short, has turned into a new class of young people, young families meeting to find community, to find uh, a true sense of, of I'll call it Christian community. And that would have never happened if these, this older generation wouldn't have said, hey, we got kids. We care about these kids. We love our kids. We want them to have the same kind of Christian experience that we had. And whether that's based on relationships or whether that's based on biblical truth or whatever angle you're coming at it from, I think it's huge to say, how are we, quote unquote, leveraging, as much as I sometimes don't like that word, how are we tapping into other generations to help build our young adult ministry. I think it's key. I think without it, we just have a microcosm of what the church is supposed to look like. And instead of an intergenerational sort of, you know, sometimes referred to as multi-generational approach to ministry. So anyway, pay attention to your environment, distribute leadership, tap into other generations. Is there anything you would add to that just before we close? You know, that intergenerational thing is kind of funny. We think I think there's something to the idea of when a millennial is coming to church, they're looking around to say, can I make friends? That's one of the things. And that might not be, you know, the most spiritual reason, but that's something that's they're looking around for. Um, and when they don't see that, 
it's not a judgment of the church. It's just they're looking at the, kind of their own needs sometimes. And I think that can be discouraging for people. But I also think millennials value intergenerational relationships. I went to this cool, hip, 20-something church in town, and afterwards I was talking to some people in the parking lot, and they just said, oh, oh you're at, you're at that, that big church. And, they, and then they said something interesting. They said, I kind of miss having other generations around. And this is a, you know, a super popular church with the average age of like 23. And, she, and this young woman said, I miss seeing other generations around. And there's just like this longing, like, a, well, this is really cool and we've got our thing, but I also, it's not perfect. And I just thought that was something of note. Yeah, that is something. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's, I mean, I think it's the way it's supposed to be, right? I mean, you know, whether that was just a personal thing for her or whether that was something that she would express on behalf of an entire community, who knows? But I think that is the reality, is that it's a healthy, faithful church that's doing its best to, I'll say, participate with God's mission to restore the world towards its intended wholeness is best done intergenerationally. So, well, that's a, a lot for us today. Um, Chris and Chris here again, just want to thank you for listening. As always, feel free to reach out to us. We have plenty of resources on our website at thinkburlap.com. We have ebooks. We have some uh, new uh, print books that we're going to be uploading soon. We have workshops you can get involved in. There's consulting things we can do for you. Let us know how we can help and when we can help. We're more than happy to do that. I appreciate it. Uh, we'll talk with you soon.